You open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. And I've been sharing with you in the past Sundays some basic Bible beliefs, the truth about some of the primary, most essential teachings of the Word of God. And this morning, I want to share with you the truth about the end of the world. And 2 Peter, the third chapter, the first 14 verses. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Since the beginning of human history, there has been a divine countdown, and all of human history has been moving towards a predetermined goal. Creation came from the hand of God, and it will return to the hand of God. The Lord Jesus Christ gave birth to human history, 
and he will also bury human history. This is one reason the Bible again and again speaks of Jesus as being the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus Christ was here before anything was ever created. And after all the kings and kingdoms of this earth shall pass away, Jesus alone will still survive. He is the beginning and he is the end. He started it all and he will end it all. And in between, he is the sovereign Lord of all creation. Creation came from the hand and the heart of God. And during this interim period, it has been under the control of God. Do not ever think that for one moment anything has ever happened in human history that caught God off guard or surprised him. He has been, always shall be, and at this very moment has his hand upon the circumstances of human history. And there is coming a day, and the whole Word of God points to this. There is coming a day when Jesus will come and God will ring down the curtain and will bring to a climax all of his earthly creation. In the Bible, there are two lines of prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that the people in Jesus' day did not understand him, and some of them were so, uh, so misunderstood his teaching and his coming that they could not believe in him because they did not understand the two lines or the two strains of prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. At times, as you read those prophecies, they seem to contradict each other. For instance, there'll be those prophecies such as Isaiah 53 that speaks of the coming one as a, surf, uh, as a suffering servant, one who is lowly, one who is rejected of men, one who is despised, and one who is so brutally treated that if you did not know he was a human being to begin with, you would not be able to recognize him as such. This is what Isaiah 53 is saying. And so if you take that prophecy, it seems as though the Lord Jesus, as he comes, is going to know only grief and sorrow and tragedy and suffering. But you can read other passages, even in the prophet Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where the Messiah, the one who is to come, the Lord who is to come, is going to come as a reigning king and will come riding on a white stallion and brandishing a powerful sword. And he will reign upon the earth and all the people of the earth shall wail because of him and they shall bow at his feet in submission. There seems to be contradiction, but no contradiction. Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant to bleed and to die, to be buried, to rise again, and to ascend to the Father. He is coming the second time in power, in majesty, in glory. And Enoch prophesied and said, Behold, I saw the Lord come with ten thousands of his saints, coming riding upon a white stallion as the Revelation pictures him coming in power, coming in victory. He is coming again to fulfill and complete all that he started. And you see this uh, double strain of prophecy. Let me give you one illustration of it. In Isaiah 61, here is a prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath appointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus, or rather Luke chapter 4, Jesus walked into the synagogue one day in Nazareth, picked up the scroll of Isaiah and read. And this is what he read. And there was delivered unto him, in verse 17, the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, if you read that carefully, you'll see that Jesus did not finish the prophecy. He says that God hath anointed him with the Spirit to do several things, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and sat down and said, This day is this scripture fulfilled. But if you go back to Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus stopped short of the prophecy because the prophecy says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus did not read that part because at that time he had not come to fulfill that prophecy. The first time he came to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, to come in grace and mercy and salvation. But he is coming again to declare the day of vengeance of our God. And this is what the Apostle Peter is talking about. This is one reason as you read through the book of Acts and the other New Testament books, you'll find that those people are permeated by a sense of urgency because they know that the time is limited. And they are captivated by a sense of belonging to another world because they know that this world is going to be destroyed. Now, I want us to use 2 Peter chapter 3 and see three things that the apostle tells us concerning the coming destruction, the end of this present world. The first thing that this passage of Scripture tells us is that the old world is proof that this present world is going to be destroyed. Notice in the third verse he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Let me stop there for just a moment. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, sin and scoffing always go together? Why are these people denying the coming of the Lord? Why do they deny the truth of the Word of God? Because they have intellectual problems and intellectual doubts? Not at all because they have spiritual problems. In order to justify their walking after their own lust, being slaves to their own base desires, in order to justify that, they have to deny the truth of God. And this is the way it always is. And men begin to scoff and deny the Word of God when sin grabs hold of them because they either have to acknowledge that the Word of God is true and repent and if they do not want to repent of their sin, they want to hang on to the base desires of their life, then the only way out for them is to scoff at the Word of God and judgment. 
And so they're being led around, slaves by their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. They say, this is an evolutionary universe. This is a steady, stable universe. This is an evolutionary universe we live in. And the, uh, all of creation and all that in it is going through a evolutionary process starting out at the bottom and gradually working its way towards the top. Man getting more intelligent, more sophisticated, more enlightened, overcoming more problems, solving more diseases and curing more diseases. And man is in a process of evolution and this is the way it has always been. But notice what he says in the fifth verse. For this they willingly are ignorant of. He doesn't say they're just ignorant of a fact. He says they deliberately shut their eyes to the truth. Why? Because the truth contradicts the, the heart, the sin that's in their life. And so they willingly are ignorant of this, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, what is the apostle trying to say in these verses? He's trying to say that we do not live in a stable universe and that human life and the universe is not evolutionary. It is not starting from a small point and gradually evolving into a greater point, starting at the bottom of the ladder and climbing its way to the, to the top. In other, to the contrary, man started at the top and he fell to the bottom, and he's continuing to fall. The, the humanistic philosophy of life that so surrounds us today, the sentimental, uh, uh, willful ignorance of men says that mankind started at the bottom, and all you have to do is to go back a few hundred years and a thousand years and see how the primitive people lived and look in our last generation and see how much we have progressed Man started at the bottom of a moral ladder and he's climbing his way to the top. The only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong. They just don't go back far enough. If you go back far enough, you will discover that man did not start at the bottom and is working his way to the top. He started at the top and he fell to the bottom. And there are so many things that even scientists and archaeologists cannot understand and explain because as you go back farther and farther and farther, you see traces of a far more intelligent uh, civilization than ours is. It is not an evolutionary universe we're living in, not a stable universe we're living in. At one time, God destroyed the world with water, and if God has done it once, he'll do it again. And that's what he's saying. In Matthew chapter 24, one day the disciples of Jesus came to him, and they asked him a question. They said, Lord, uh, what shall be the sign of your coming? How shall we know when the world is about to end? What's the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus gave them a sign. In verse 36 of Matthew 24, he said, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Nobody really knows when that day is going to come. But he says, I want to tell you how you can see signs of the times. You can begin to get hints that it's near. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. 
so shall also be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, would you like to be able to know when the coming of the Lord, the end of the world, is getting closer and closer? He said, instead of being in an evolutionary universe, we are in a boomerang universe. And we're making a circle. And God destroyed the world one time because the people in Noah's day lived a certain kind of life. And he said, when the world gets like it was in Noah's day, when it makes the full circle, not evolving, but when it makes the circle and falls again, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also it be in the day when Jesus comes again. Now, the only description we have of the days of Noah is found in Genesis chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now, we don't have time to read, but when you get home this afternoon, you read Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and I want to point out to you six characteristics of the days of Noah. Now, remember Jesus said that the coming of the end of the world, the end of the world, the sign of it is going to be when the days of Noah are duplicated in your day. There are six signs, are six characteristics of the days of Noah. I have jotted down out of those four, five, and six chapters of Genesis. Listen to them. Number one, it was a day of shifting population resulting in the building of cities and larger cities. You read it, four, five, and six. Population was shifting and moving, leaving previous residents and moving and the people were grouping together. Those that had lived in isolation in the outlying areas were coming together, and the people were massing together, resulting in the necessity of building larger and larger cities, a shifting and moving population. The second characteristic of the days of Noah was the abuse of marriage and the breakdown of the home situation. You read it in Genesis chapter 4, and I believe it's in verse 17, that never before had uh, there been this abuse of marriage until Genesis chapter 4. That was the first time marriage that God had instituted in the Garden of Eden had been abused, and the home began to break down. That was uh, one of the characteristics of the days of Noah. Number three, it was an age of new music. Fourth characteristic, it was a day of economic upheaval. Fifth characteristic, it was a day of the discovery and growth of new industry. For the first time, men began to work with brass and steel and iron. Econo uh, uh, new industry, discovering new ways and new industry. A lot of people are uptight about the energy crisis that we're going through right now. And if you're uptight about it, and if you think that this means that the country from a human standpoint is on its way down, you do not know history. Every crisis such as we're having now has always been the parent of new discovery and new industry. And out of this energy crisis, man is going to be forced to find and develop new sources of energy and new sources of resources, and industry is going to grow even more and more. I don't see how it could grow any more than it has grown in our generation. The sixth characteristic you'll find in those three chapters is it was a day of unprecedented violence. But there was something else about that unprecedented violence. 
And this, and, and this is what makes it so akin to our day. It was not only a day of unprecedented violence, but it was a day in which those who were exercising the violence escaped punishment. Those six characteristics, and it's almost like reading a current events report in high school. There is one more evidence that God gave us, Jesus gave us, at the end of the world was drawing nigh, and that's in Matthew chapter 24 in the 14th verse, when he says that when this gospel shall have been preached around the world. A generation ago, you could not have fulfilled that verse of Scripture. In our generation, that verse of Scripture has been fulfilled. It is possible today for me to stand in Irving, Texas and preach the gospel around the world. I could do it instantly by way of satellite television. But I'm preaching around the world right now. There are people listening to me preach right now in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Thailand, in Tokyo, in Costa Rica. They've got a little thing made out of plastic and some electronic tape in it and they put it into a little box and push a button and out comes a voice and the gospel is being preached around the world. In our generation, that verse of Scripture has been fulfilled. And the old world, the days of Noah, God destroyed it and the same characteristics are true in our day. The second thing is this, that our present world, our present world is right now preserved for this coming destruction. I want you to notice what he says in the seventh verse. But now the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, the same word that destroyed the old world, that same word, which is the word of God, are kept in store. That means they have been gathered up in times past and are reserved. That word means they are being guarded and being watched over unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, the seventh verse is an amazing verse. What it says is that long ago, and it, we don't know when, but long ago, way back under in eternity past or at the moment of creation, there was gathered up. That's what the word uh, kept in store means. There was gathered up a store of fire, and it is being watched over, reserved, maintained, and guarded it is being watched over until the day when God destroys the world with fire. In other words, the agent that God is going to use to destroy this present world has already been gathered up and is reserved and is locked away and God is watching it. All right, now let's look in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away. And the word pass away means to loosen to dissolve. It'll, it just comes apart with a great noise. And that means a great whistling sound, a large roar or whistle. And the elements shall liquefy with fervent heat. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, I want you to remember what we said about verse 7, that already God has gathered up fire and has stored it away and is watching it, maintaining it, guarding it until the day of judgment. Now, in verse 10, he says it's going to be a fervent heat. The Greek word translated fervent heat means a heat that comes from within. It is an internal heat. It is the same word that is translated fever. 
What happens when you have a fever? Does that mean that you've gotten around the fire and the, the heat from the outside has caused you to have a fever? Not at all. It is an internal heat. The heat is coming from within your body. It is a fever, internal heat. God has gathered up fire and has stored it away and is watching over it. And the fire that is going to destroy this world in the future is going to be an internal heat. Now, 40 years ago, you couldn't prove that verse literally. You couldn't prove it intellectually, but you can today because scientists have discovered that there is a vast store of fire in the guts of this earth. And God's Word is always true. You know, it's amazing to me. The smarter man gets, the more he finds out how the Bible is true. I, I remember reading a, a book that was written, uh, oh, about 50, 100 years ago, say, when, uh, saying that archaeological discoveries will disprove the Word of God. And the amazing thing is that the, that the more those fellows go over there and dig up uh, uh, that dust and that dirt and uh, rummage around those old dry bones, the, the more they discover that the Word of God is true. They used to say that some of the uh, uh, civilizations and some of the uh, nations uh, that were mentioned in the Old Testament, they, were, they used to say that is not true, especially in the first chapters of Genesis, 11 chapters of Genesis. That, was, that cannot be true because... Uh, we have no record that such a civilization ever existed. And, and it's so amusing and amazing that as they dig deeper and deeper over there, they find out evidences that sure enough that civilization did exist. I, you know, I, I suppose in the Old Testament days they thought that a lot of prophecies wouldn't come true. You know, the first coming of Jesus was prophesied three different ways. Isaiah said that uh, he would come out of Nazareth. Hosea said he would come out of Egypt. Micah said he would be born in Bethlehem. Can you imagine those people getting together in that day, the preachers and the seminary professors getting together in that day? And uh, some of them were uh, uh, Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehemanarians <laughs> and saying uh, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And others would say, no, uh, I'm a Nazarian. Uh, Isaiah the prophet who was our greatest prophet says he'll come out of uh, Nazareth and then uh, others would gather around Hosea they were Hosarians I guess uh, and they would say no the book of Hosea says out of Egypt have I called my son and then there were a group of people over here and I have an idea they may have been the larger group they said well since the Bible contradicts itself and that can't be true it's all symbolical because we just don't see how that the belly of the earth could open up and all of these scorpions could come out of it. Excuse me, I got in the revelation, didn't mean to. And so it must, uh, uh, and how the blood uh, could run so high, it could be up to the horse's bits. And anyway, anyway, who said, uh, they won't have horses in the battle of Armageddon, but if you'll study carefully the plain to Megiddo where that it's going to take place and there are mountains there, the only way to get over them, uh, a it would be for Calvary. Well, anyway, so this group of people, uh, this group of people said, uh, well, since they contradict itself, it can't be true, so it's all symbolical. I, I like the way the Lord pulls tricks on us. I, that's not really a good way to say it, but, <clears throat> but if you'll read in the first chapters of Matthew, 
You see that he was born in Bethlehem. And I like the way the Holy Spirit was speaking to those fellows that said it was symbolical. Because over and over again in Matthew, the Holy Spirit leads Matthew to say it like this, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of by the prophet. So he was born in Bethlehem in order that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of by the prophet out of Bethlehem. But somebody wanted to kill Jesus, and so an angel said, Go into Egypt, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. When they came back out of Egypt, the angel said, There are still those that would like to take the child's life. And so they turned aside and went and dwelt in Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. Every prophecy, even though contradictory to their eyes, was fulfilled, literally. Don't get uptight and upset if some of the prophecies seem to contradict themselves. It's only in your eyes and your understanding. Every prophecy concerning the first coming of Jesus, over 400 of them, was fulfilled literally, literally. And every prophecy concerning his second coming shall be fulfilled literally. And the same ones that prophesied his first coming literally also prophesy his second coming. I'm going to believe them. They've got a better record than you have or a better record than some of these fellows have. They've got a better record than Jean Dixon. She's not 100%, and that's the sign of a true prophet. But the sign of a true prophet is 100% accuracy, and they were 100% accurate. And the old world proves it. And in this present world, there is stored up, there is stored up fire under the day of judgment. Now, one last thing. There's going to be a new world promised after this coming destruction. A new world promised. I like that song that I've heard sung several times, A Bright New World. I don't know of anything we need any more today than a bright new world. And it's not going to come by legislation or revolution. It's going to come by the return of the Lord. It's going to be a bright new world. Now, the Lord is waiting. And there's a good reason why some people would doubt that the Lord was going to keep His Word because Jesus has been gone well nigh 2,000 years and He hasn't come back yet. But notice what it says in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come. And the Greek reading there reads like this. The day of the Lord will come indeed. He will come indeed. Even though he tarries. Even though one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The day of the Lord will come indeed. You bet your life on it. He will come. This day is going to come no matter how long it seems to take. And then he says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. A new quality of earth, what the word new indicates, a new quality of earth, uh, an earth such as we've never seen before. A new heavens, the old heaven was touched by sin, and God is going to create a new earth and a new heavens in which shall dwell righteousness in which shall dwell righteousness. When this new heavens and this new earth comes about, the only thing that's going to be found in it is righteousness. Everything that is unrighteous will not be there. What does it mean to be righteous? Let me use another word I think that will clarify it. To be righteous simply means to be right with God, right with Godness. And the only way we can be righteous is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who has not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will perish with that world. Because the Bible says in this very chapter that they are going to be reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. 
The word perdition means to be delivered up to eternal misery. It means the destruction of all that makes existence worthwhile. It doesn't mean the destruction of existence, but it means to destroy everything that makes existence worthwhile. Doesn't mean that he's going to destroy the existence of life, but the essence of life. Life will be drained from all of its meaning. There will be no reason to exist, but there will be eternal existence for the ungodly, those who have no reverence for God. Ungodly doesn't mean a man who is a drunk or a murderer. It simply means anybody who has no reverence and no respect for God and those that do not take God seriously. And I want you to know this morning, if you do not take God seriously and have a reverential awe for Him, you will be reserved for eternal misery. Only those who are righteous, not because they have lived a certain kind of life, but because one day they came to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered their lives to Him. Now, in closing, I want to mention just one other very important thing. He says in the 12th verse, speaking to those of us who are saved, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. In verse 12, 11, he's saying, since all of these things are going to come to pass, what manner of persons ought we to be? What manner of person ought you to be? If you're a Christian, what kind of person ought you to be? Well, you ought to be holy in every manner of behavior. Your whole life ought to be permeated by holiness set apart for God and reverence and respect for God because if you are living a holy life and a life that takes God seriously and reveres Him and respects Him, you will be doing two things. You will be looking for that day and you will be hastening the coming of that day. Now, that is one of the most unbelievable statements in all the Word of God. But I have studied it and I have checked it out and I don't know any other way to say it or interpret it or translate it other than this, that that Christian who is living a holy life, a life set apart to God, a life that takes God seriously in every respect of his life, will be doing two things. Number one, he will be looking forward to that day because he will see his master face to face. But the second thing he will be doing, he will be speeding up the coming of that day. And Christians, as they live holy lives set apart to God, they are bringing about that day quicker. They are speeding up the coming of the day of the Lord. Now, you look back at the ninth verse. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Why hasn't Jesus come? Why hasn't He returned? He's not tardy, as some men think He is, but is long-suffering to us who are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I read that verse for years and years, and I read it to mean that God was long-suffering to the lost people because He didn't want them to perish. But that's not what it says. He doesn't want the lost people to perish, but notice the object of His long-suffering. He is long-suffering to who? To us, those of us who are saved. Because only as you and I get with it and live holy lives are the lost going to be saved. As we begin to set aside our lives for God, and dedicate our lives to God and share Jesus and witness and people are saved, then the Lord Jesus Christ, through our holy life, His coming will be speeded up. And what's God waiting on? He's waiting on us. He's waiting on us. 
The object of God's long-suffering in the delay of His coming is not the lost people, it's the saved people. And if you want to know what it is this morning that keeps Jesus Christ from breaking through the heavens, it's your backslidden condition. And that's why there's going to be a great revival before the day of the Lord comes. The great revival, the greatest revival that the church has ever seen is going to precede the coming of the day of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus will not come for a dirty, defiled bride. No self-respecting bridegroom would. And so before he comes back, before the heavenly bridegroom returns for his bride, he's going to clean her up, make her pure, make her chaste, make her spotless. For the Bible says, you read it next, and then he's going to come. And so that's why I get excited and look up to the heavens when I hear what I hear, reports from all over the country, all over the world of revival, of people turning to God. Last week, I the privilege of meeting a, an ex-Catholic priest who turned to Jesus Christ just a few months ago. Uh, you, you'd say that a man like that was the, the, the most unlikely prospect to ever be saved. And uh, everywhere you hear reports of of people turning to God. And just this past week, I, I've heard reports from India and Korea where literally thousands, tens of thousands of people have been saved in crusades. Not preached by Billy Graham, but preached from brother pastor just up the street that nobody ever heard of. No great evangelists, just preachers that nobody ever heard of going to India and, Pakistan, and uh, Indonesia and Korea and holding weekday crusades, preaching under the most, believe me, uh, in intolerable conditions, trying to preach through an interpreter. And yet, when the invitation is given, thousands, I, I don't mean a hundred, I don't mean one thousand, I mean tens of thousands turning to Christ. And if you were to go to Korea, and I wish the Lord would let me go, I want to see that, you could go four o'clock in the morning, and you could see thousands of Christians meeting in prayer, meeting in prayer. No wonder when Billy Graham was there in his last service, over one million people heard him preach the gospel. Because every morning, every morning, those, those Christians in Korea, it is the fastest growing Christian uh, in, in the world. It is just multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. And it's because thousands of those Christians gather every morning and pray for hours just to pray and seek the Lord. They're hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. And every time you hear a report of genuine spiritual awakening from any part of the country and see the responsiveness of the people to the Lord Jesus Christ, you look up because your redemption draweth nigh. The Ron Dunn Podcast is available only for personal edification, not to be duplicated, uploaded to the web, or resold without prior written consent. It is managed and operated by Sherwood Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to additional Ron Dunn messages, visit SherwoodBaptist.net slash bookstore and search Ron Dunn. For more Ron Dunn materials, including sermon outlines, devotions, and scanned pages from a study Bible, please visit RonDunn.com.